and welcome to our audio version of the York Literature Festival Student Showcase. Due to COVID-19, the showcase was sadly cancelled to protect the health of the students, staff and guests that would have attended. However, our team wanted to find a way to still have the Student Showcase, which is why I present to you the online audio version of the Beyond the Walls Student Showcase 2020. Firstly, we have a piece written by Lucy Appleyard called Growth. This will be read by a student called Pierce. I decided I would never cry again. When you held my face in your hands and joined up the dots. As if it was no trouble at all. How then, I thought, can I not piece myself back together? How then, I wondered, can I not love her too? Up next, Pierce will be reading a piece written by himself, titled Like Son, Like Father. A truly real Irishman. Egiola Gan Kian. Paul Durkin. Finbar Sylvester saw life through the bottom of a glass. A retired nationalist with the head of a snowflake, had an arm like a leg, and a punch that could sink a battleship. The only problem for him was that his head just didn't sit quite right on his shoulders. It just wouldn't do. He had to get a new one, and his doctor agreed. Lucky for Finbar, his letdown of a son had one up for grabs that wasn't being put to any moral use. So, as any father would, he took it. In short, he was a good man who did bad things. I've made a note here of some of the bad things that he did. He missed church every single week, made up words, pissed in the street, took his dying son's head. Although, he would like me to add, he was about to kick the bucket anyway. He also drank ten pints a day, and when he drank too much, he then pissed in the street. I'm a good man, he would tell the tapster behind the bar whenever one of these things came up in conversation. It seemed to find its way into the conversation a tad too often for old Finbar's liking. Things were different these days, though. He had his new head, and people were starting to notice. One afternoon, on his usual trail down Falls Road, he was met short by a preacher, who must have had a death wish. How dare you, the man mumbled, keeping just the right amount of distance for his own good. Be away, pontiff. He had no use of this head. Now if you don't mind, I have important business to attend to, Finbar explained, and moved along without looking back. Hundred yards further down the road, and he was stopped midstream again, this time by an old merchant he often saw passing by. Hey you, he called. You ought to be ashamed. I ought to be three pints deep, but unfortunately, I keep getting disturbed. Besides, thingamajig is six feet under, and I've got a life to live. He picked up the pace for the pub was now in sight. Before he reached his beloved old tools, he stopped for a piss. He was draining like a racehorse when he felt a strong, firm tap on his shoulder. He turned on a sixpence and almost drenched the guy. What the feck? Do you mind? Finbar said. The stranger didn't flinch. I'm a friend of Ginger's. Got yourself a father? Finbar had had just about enough. No more words were exchanged as he tucked away his master of ceremonies. The boy was left kaput and Finbar set off once more. Reached no tools seconds after. In the days of that non-Agarian head he carried for near 60 years, he would have chuckled at the events that arose down Falls Road that afternoon. Today, though, finally sitting with his handsomely poured stout, 
He couldn't help but feel guilt-ridden. He hoped to God this new head wasn't allergic to the black stuff. Two weeks went by and things were getting worse. But he still continued with the same humdrum routine, all the while ignoring the glare of onlookers. He was persistent. He continued drinking his stout, hoping he could regain the taste. But it proved no use. Even the whiskey tasted off. He looked towards the tapster through his son's eyes. Do I seem different to you? He asked. Well, I didn't want to say, but you've never been the same since that dreaded transplant. I don't want to change. I like the way I am. Maybe it's this whiskey. Whiskey's the devil. Go and get it checked. Better safe than sorry, suggested the trusty tapster. So, Finbar did just that. One to one, the specialist told him with absolute confidence that the transplant had been a success. You are the same old feared man. Just like the younger and a lot more ginger, he declared. Oh, and you've shrunk by two inches. But it's nothing to worry about. Take my word for it. As far as he was concerned, he had no reason to ask any more questions on the matter and went away feeling much more chipper in time for his afternoon crawl. Unfortunately, before he could even leave the door for O'Toole's, his cheerfulness was overtaken. He felt a slight twinge in his senses. The skin on his body began to get whiter, changing, dying and growing all at the same time. Rushing to find his reflection, he saw his son's face staring back at him. It would have never been his first choice, but here he was, watching this somatic change unfold. Inside, panic was beginning to rage. All the while, the reflection had a smirk that grew wider and wider until it began to laugh. An uncontrollable laugh. What he felt and what he saw were not the same thing. He was no longer behind the wheel. He was behind the eyes. Trapped. Hello, father. It was him. How could it be? The voice spoke again, true and proud with a hint of mockery. It is I, the authentic hobgoblin, the ginger with no head. Finbar tried to speak, but his words just bounced around his head like a peanut in a jar. He tried to move, but his legs were two spades sucking clay. All the while, the eyes of his son glared deeply into the leftovers of Finbar's soul. The weeks and months went by, and not one could go anywhere without the other. A bond no father and son had ever had before. Ginger had the say on walking, talking and pretty much the whole shebang. Finbar incarcerated within the mind of his own son. Existing, that is all. A truly voiceless Irishman. Finbar now spent his days in resentment at his son's way of life. Ginger spent most of it wasting it at work instead of being at the pub. Probably for the best. It keeps him having to enjoy Ginger's choice of drink. Gin and tonic. Finbar still had his own thoughts. He just had to make sure his son was busy when he indulged in them. He spent every conscious moment trying to devise a plan to gain control for himself. Could he think so hard it would push Ginger back to wherever he was before? Could he embarrass Ginger so much he would never want to show his face again, leaving him to take charge? It all started to seem futile and giving up looked like his only option. Then one day, when all was looking bleak, Ginger was perched on a wall at the edge of Queensbridge. It tumbled backwards, hitting his head. Soon after, Finbar realised he had a feeling. Like his whole body was recovering from pins and needles. He had control.
He thought about going to the pub at first. Oh, how he would have killed for a Guinness. Instead, he thought a little longer. He peered over the edge of the bridge and down at the river that flowed beneath. It was as surreal as anything he ever saw with his own eyes. As his son began to wake, he looked down once again and knew just what to do. It was simple. A voiceless Irishman is no Irishman at all. Thank you, Pierce. Now on to our second speaker, Megan, who will be reading out a few different pieces from the anthology. This first one is titled The Self-Contradictory Nature of Cameron Law, written by Cameron Law. He is crass, but also tame. Take that one time he was at a pub with a few people. He wouldn't call them mates. He didn't know them that well and wasn't comfortable sharing intimate details about himself. To him, this evening felt more like a business trip than a social outing. He was networking, adding social media contacts and taking in their faces so he could turn to them for a group project. He hadn't spoken for four minutes. He knew that. He was making a mental note of it. He realises that he can't let this audition of his go to waste. His mind whirls, thinking of what worked in previous situations. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not Madeleine McCann. That caused an uproar at home. Maybe he should try that. He decided it was too risky and took a big gulp of cider instead. He cries hard but dances harder. Cameron Cameron drowns his pillow. That was stupid, lol, he thinks to himself. He was now dancing to Abba. He wants to push himself, but keeps pulling himself back. How to feel like a piece of shit in four simple steps. Step one, think about creating something. This could be anything that pops into your head. It doesn't matter if you haven't done it before. That's part of the learning process. Step two, don't actually create anything. Alternatively, make a start of something. Get frustrated because it wasn't perfect the first time and give up. Step three, beat yourself up about it. That's all you're good at. Step four, simply rinse and repeat. He wants to be single but also wants to be in a relationship. Why did you date her? You're way too good for her. Why did you get with her? You can do better than that. Cameron has heard these comments a lot lately. Three thoughts have emerged from said comments. Firstly, It was kind of harsh on the girls that had chosen to be intimate with Cameron. Okay, he's not a white knight. He'll admit that some of them were mistakes formed from a combination of desperation and alcohol, but for the majority, he still thinks fondly of. He was grateful that they chose to give him a chance, especially given that he isn't much of a looker, as, on a good day, he might just qualify as a seven. Hell, some of them even made the first move, which he found both extremely attractive and progressive. Secondly, Was the latter comment a compliment or an insult? Cameron likes to believe that it's a compliment because it's usually his friends who are saying it. What if Cameron genuinely liked that girl because they had an interesting discussion, not simply because of physical appearance? What if they're actually mocking him and laughing at him the moment he turns his back? No, he doesn't want to think like that anymore. Finally, what does it say about Cameron as a person? Does he go for the low-hanging fruit simply because it's the only option? Maybe because it requires less effort? Cameron has been single for quite a while now. He doesn't really know how to feel about it. Originally, it was like letting go of a 50 kilogram weight. He could finally do what he wanted, where he wanted, when he wanted. He didn't have to worry about those little things he had to do to make sure his partner was content. The daily texts, the buying of gifts and constantly saying yes and sorry to her. It all went up in smoke. 
The ball and chain he didn't even realise was there had been unshackled. He reconnected with friends, put more focus into his university work and played a bunch of sweet, sweet video games. He had saved a lot of money from being single. He could treat himself to a bit of relaxation every now and then and he was up to play anything. A game where you play as a goose who terrorises a British village in a minimalist art style has menus like British motorway signs and a designated honk button. Hell yeah, sign him up. However, as much as he loves having all his these new experiences he has no one to share them with it seems like some things are just naturally better in twos there were some co-op games that caught Cameron's eye but he knew that they were practically unplayable with an AI companion his family never really saw the appeal of video games so we couldn't play with them and being at a university 200 miles away from home didn't help and while some of his friends enjoyed video games they played different consoles and stuck to their online competitive multiplayer games, which aren't really Cameron's cup of tea. So, for the majority of the time, Cameron's experiences and passions belonged solely to himself. He wanted someone to share experiences and passions with, so they would constantly pass their interests back and forth. Something like this. Okay, tonight we can watch a few episodes of in t- Insert TV Show They Love Here, then a few levels of Overcooked after that. Sound good to you? Oh yes, that sounds great. Oh Cameron, you're so handsome and strong and humble and creative and witty and acne-free. As great as all this sounds, Cameron wonders how much he would have to sacrifice to get to that stage. First and most difficult, there's getting someone's attention. Then there's the expenses. Dating can get quite expensive when some girls expect you to pay for everything. Then getting comfortable enough to open up to someone so freely like that. That's going to take a while. Finally, and most impactful of all, he simply doesn't have the time. He's in his final year of university, make or break time. It also means he'd be heading home soon and hopefully travelling abroad, and Cameron learnt the hard way that long-distant relationships simply don't work. He puts a record on. Someday I'll find her, and I'm still reminded, maybe she's best in dreams, dreaming. Mac DiMarco Megan will now read a piece called Contactless by Sarah Eichen. Letter, rip, peel. Private and confidential. Banking made easier. Rectangle, thin, plastic. Fits perfectly into its delegated slot. Insert, pin, cash. Crisp polymer sheets, released with worth only in trade. Food, tap. Clothes, tap. Phone, tap. Balance, zero pound. Job? Enclosed is your financial statement. Work, save, spend. Continuous motion of a rotating wheel. Today, tomorrow, always. Forever trying to save only to waste on the material. Friendship, tap. Family, tap. Happiness, declined. Tap, tap, tap. On to Megan's third reading, we have Paper Grenade written by Sophie Kilmartin. Bundled into a wooden chest for what seemed like centuries, in truth, it was only a decade. Kneeling there, I stare at the fading leather-bound diary laying on top of Grandad's old soldier uniform. Picking up the diary, I begin to examine it for the hundredth time, tracing my finger over the cracks of the blinding. Someone once told me a diary is your friend you can carry around, doesn't talk or argue back. Most of all, the temptation to confine all your worries, woes and wishes for the future. So, did he write the diary to be read? Do the dead even care for privacy? 
I hold the diary high up to my nose and hope that it still smells like him. Instead, my nostrils are filled with dust, causing me to choke. Recovering, I make my way over to the desk and plonk myself on my chair that has the most elegant ornate cabriole legs. Flicking the desk light on, I sit and ponder over the decision to read what tales are told within the pages. Is this a violation of privacy or a tribute to his memory? The window to his inner thoughts. I feel myself getting more questions rather than answers. I flip through the dog-eared pages as if there was something that would set itself free. I was half expecting it to be cryptic, but there is no secret language to translate, no symbols to decipher, nor most code. Just a scrawny writing of the error and once crisp white pages now stained by life. After returning, Grandad stuffed the diary under his and Nana's mattress. There it lay throughout Grandad's illnesses, nightmares and the conception of my father. If it could speak, it would seriously complain. Hide it. Keep it safe. The instructions he left on his deathbed. I've respected his wishes all these years. I hid it in this wooden chest, letting it lay dormant. Fearing if I disobeyed his instructions, a Pandora box scenario. I shiver at the thought. When I was young, he would tell me stories of his time in the war. The mischief he and the Belgian students got up to and the tricks they played on the nuns. Then his time in the trenches, making it sound like he fought the Jerry's single-handed. Even about that soldier. So, whatever he wanted me to know in life, he told me himself. Wouldn't he? During a project of World War One at school, I discovered diaries in wartime were genuinely f forbidden with the danger of it falling into the enemy's hands, but Grandad was never one for rules. It's frightening how this was once growing in a forest surrounded by woodland creatures doing their business. Add a little leather and binding, now it's the mo most manipulative and chilling object I've ever come across. Or, and these days, the kids have social media. What would you do for others not to read your long-buried secrets? It cannot speak, but long-buried secrets are about to explode. For this diary is a paper grenade. Up next, Megan will be reading out a piece by Nikki Kipax, titled Boxes. Alison wants to sell me boxes. She emails me every day at 9.14, then follows up on Twitter. We're on hashtag first name terms, but we've never met. Alison chats to me about boxes like a pal might ask about your weekend. They are well durable, she says. Some are even tamper evident. You haven't even seen polypropylene until you've seen our polypropylene. Hurry, there are now only 273 in stock. From what I see, they come in sputum green, slag heap grey, or chicken heart yellow. On screen, they hang suspended, dangling pixels of Tupperworld competing for best light. If you hover over one, it spins to show every side but every side is exactly the same. I have no idea why Alison believes I need boxes or what she thinks I would do with them. I'm not even sure she is who she says she is. One day, I wake up with hashtag dark feelings about Alison and her boxes. In a slow fluster, I attempt to instantly unsubscribe, but I am quickly taken to a page that reads, did you really mean to instantly unsubscribe? This makes me carefully consider if I really mean to instantly unsubscribe. I click no. Now I'm back to emails from Alison who wants to sell me boxes. But we have a new relationship based on better understanding. She knows that I will never buy a box from her, no matter how durable or shiny it is. 
And I know that she will email me every day at 9.14 with the latest offer on bulk sales, regardless of warfare, government collapse or global pandemic. Alison has become the hashtag box buddy I didn't know I needed. I look forward to her emails and I think she's pleased to be sending them to me. No boxes will ever be bought or sold as an outcome of this e alliance. But sometimes it's just nice to connect with someone else in an ill-matched but well-boxed part of the universe. Finally, Megan's last reading will be a piece called Hashtag GE2019, created by R.E. Kirby. Sadness are the trailing colours, crimson, soppy, snowflake socialist, all I see is red, when all there is is blue, sadness, depression, melancholy high school English literature teaches metaphor to keep you in mind of empathy, of the meaning of it all, of what it all means, I'm not sure anymore. One thing is for sure, whether I wake up tomorrow with skies of blue and roses red in hue or of gloomy dishevelled pictures of the past of me and you, I will be thankful for me and for you, for us, for this planet too, for having the right to fight, to fight back, to fight for, to fight to, towards futures with us all. Because there is no human mass extinction here. We did that to all the other species. Perhaps they're safe now in history. Our toxic touch cast carbon dated as a permanent singleton left for dust. But we are left to deal with what we have done. But we are divided with what we have done. But all we want is to love those who we love, right? So be it. Just bitterness blizzards fogging the lens on a crisp winter's day or that the other half have lost that metaphor, the depth of penetrating aquamarine flowing through our veins. Remember the importance to love those around you. In every breath you say, holding tight, we survive this way. Thank you, Megan, for reading those beautiful pieces of writing. Our third speaker will be Elizabeth, who will be reading out two pieces. This is Debris by Sylvie Marie Tunes. The crooked old lady rarely moved from the waterside once she dumped down amidst the rubbish and wreckage that drifted ashore. Some days she eased herself to a spot of clean sand, always directly on top of it. Others she'd ruffle her wrinkled hand through the plastic and pebbles of styrofoam, desperately trying to find a clean patch but rarely able to. She would sit from the early turquoise morning to the pastel blue afternoon, simply staring at the waves rolling in from the sea, sometimes crashing against the beach when pelting rain fell from the gabro-tinted clouds. The girl would find her in a raincoat and a bright yellow Sue Wester stuck to her head like glue. Not even the harshest gale could tear it from her head and whip it into the air for the clouds to swallow. Often she would find her in a floral summer dress. She was always there, the old lady, enchanted by the rubbish and whatever else the locals dumped on the beach. With thick boots, the girl trudged her way along the rubbish-laden ground, Moro's mood tugging at her features at the thought of more plastic and wreckage drifting ashore. It was hard enough to walk as it was. She didn't need more garbage to make it more difficult to walk to school. It was the first day of the semester and the wind was forcing her carefully braided hair to come undone. She could taste salt on her tongue 
the wind making her teeth clatter, swapping the song on her iPhone to Sedona by Houndmouth. She passed the lady and spotted a worn and torn book in her hands. She was a crooked old thing, hunched over the novel as if about to push it into her stomach and let her intestines devour it. The girl stuck her hand in her bag and picked up the sandwich her mother had made her before she was ushered out of the house. Wrapped in cling film, the sandwich didn't look particularly appetising, but the girl was hungry, and unless she planned to be in a sour mood for the entire day, she had to eat. She unwrapped the film from the sandwich and chucked it somewhere amongst all the rubbish on the ground. It wasn't like anyone ever would notice anyways. On the second day of the semester, the girl startled when she passed a wrinkly lady, who chirped, You're here, really. She spoke on out-breath, the wind tearing at her words, whipping them into the air. She was spattered with white pebbles of styrofoam. She looked like a Dalmatian starting to grow into its spots, her black woolen coat attracting the pebbles like glue. Shuffling on her feet, the girl grasped her wrist behind her back. On my way to school, her denim coat was already attracting the white pebbles, and she dreaded every second she had to stand there, peering out at the open sea, grimacing at the plastic lull against her exposed ankles. A book rested on the lady's lap. There was a dead yellow bird on the cover. The girl frowned. The lady petted the spot beside her, a patch of clean sand, but the girl remained upright, eyes thinning at the twitching gnarly hand, veins snarled around the wrinkles. The end of nature, the girl read in her head, the title of the book. How fun, she thought dryly when the crooked lady spoke again. She was running late for her lecture, but didn't want to be rude either. I remember reading this nearly thirty years ago, she said, shaking her head. Thought it was rubbish. A small, tired smile curled on the girl's lips, the kind she had to force. But then, she sighed and gripped a tiny white styrofoam pearl. First, it was a few crisp packets and instant barbecues. It was a lovely little beach back then, she said, and nodded at the sandwich the girl held in her hand. It used to be a, some tide rack, washing ashore every now and then, not plastic. Red tinted the girl's cheeks, creeping up her neck and temples like a rising thermometer. She could not for the life of her remember a time when the beach hadn't looked like a dump site. I used to sit here with my husband, the old lady said, and stroke the patch of clean sand running it through her fingers. Long before it looked like this. With a sad closed lip smile, she said, I couldn't not come here, even though the world changed. Was it really a clean beach before? The girl wondered. I need to get to my lecture, she said, and gestured to the town in the distance. Lady cackled, of course, of course, on you go she said and waved her hand at the girl, ushering her away. Leaving her to her own business, the girl glanced back, chewing her lips raw while trudging through the plastic and rubbish. Clean beach, she thought, and her brows narrowed. The old lady leaned back in the sand, still stroking the patch of clean sand. Every day after, the girl would stop by the old lady, no matter the weather. On the days when it rained, she tilted her brolly to shield the crooked creature sitting in the sand. On the days of sun, she would share a piece of her sandwich, quick to put her new lunchbox back in her bag. On one particular day, the girl bounced toward the old lady, tender-hearted and insecure, when she held out a piece of paper. It had a picture of the beach, but there was no plastic, no rubbish. She'd found it in the library, copied it. Handing the flyer to the old lady, the girl pointed to the text beneath the photo. This Friday, 5pm, make the beach great again. The time will come and help you clean up. It's time to make a change. With a sweet, wobbly smile, the old lady tilted her head back, the Sue Wester flopping in the sea breeze. A silver lining threatened to spill some tears from her eyes, but the girl merely swatted her hand at her. It's time for the town to change, she said. 
and the old lady gave a curt nod, the slip of paper pressed tightly to her chest. Elizabeth's second reading will be a piece called Luna, and it was written by Jessica White. The blood is brown sludge against the white cotton of her briefs, and the bell rings, and it's time for double maths, where she sits next to Lucy, and they think it's a struggle to solve what XX is, but elsewhere a girl, a woman, a wife, a mother, a sister, huddles in a hut, and can't touch dairy or step inside until her time is done, and the nights are cold, and in the morning light their blood is what Victoria wished for each month instead of pregnancy, and the despair each Tudor wife felt when she saw red drops instead of a red head of a sun, and when their linens were washed and dried, their blood-stained whites are the rags the washerwoman uses to staunch her own blood from dripping down her thighs as under the burning sun she picks sugar cane with a child on her back and sorrow in her heart that the first time she bled it was after the overseer and that child is long gone and still the blood trickles thank you elizabeth our fourth speaker will be emily this first piece is titled maths and is written by marcia mckee my 30-year-old daughter started speaking in gender-neutral pronouns out of the blue, and I, because I'm 50, fundamentally, you might say embarrassingly, misunderstood. My daughter told me that Marlene had done her a month-long favour by looking after the dog, and so my daughter bought a thank-you gift. My daughter said, I bought them a bike. I add all this up, the Marlene and the them, and work out that Marlene is from a couple. And then, out loud, in all sincerity, I say, so will they share the bike, or is it a tandem? And I get this look, which is all about my sleepy northern lack of woke. My daughter can be like that sometimes, but I accept it, totally. And while I don't immediately adopt or adapt to this singular version of they or them, it penetrates. I find I care to improve. A day later, I'm on the metro when a very beautiful human indeed gets on. So exquisite that, truthfully, I do this a lot. I take a surreptitious photo, just in case my mental pen portrait fails me later. Precision place beanie of the softish cashmere in the palest blue, choppy, charcoal bob, angled in perfect parallel with the jawline, delicate chin dipped towards a phone, emphasising symmetry by drawing attention to the angle of that geometric nose and exposing the full extent of those almond eyelids powdered in vivid purple and black-lined with a scrumptiously carefree flick. I observe myself, mentally adding and subtracting all the data, trying to calculate at least some of, the sum of this, being. The hair, the eyes, the demure twist of the long limbs, the skinny, braceleted ankle, equals girl. Plus or minus, the leg hair, the flat chest, the shoe size, equals boy. But don't get me wrong, however it may look, just because I'm 50. I understand that I am really just observing floating abstractions coming and going and messing me about as they've always done, trying to make a thing so that I know the thing. And I might be from those simple arithmetical days where someone who looked like this vision equated to neither nought nor summit, but I always hated maths. Thank you, universe, I think to myself, right there and then on the metro. First, for sending me this timely, practical and gorgeous application for the they or them. 
I may or may not choose to use, for now at least. And second, for a reminder of the natural bend of the wandering brain, the ultimate body elastic, our liberally plastic fantastic. Emily's next reading will be a piece called The Clouds by Lucy Morton. I find myself focusing on the clouds, not the smog blocking my eyes, not the deafening cannons bursting my ears, not the men I've watched die. Wishing the fighting was more detached, not so dirty, not so visceral, not so agonising. Watching a man's life leave his eyes, I feel the weight of guilt, I feel the thrum of battle, I feel the need to push through. I hope for sons of sons to experience war differently, for this war will end, another war will begin. I can only pray for war to change. I find myself focusing on the clouds, not the people, not the weapons, not what I should be doing. Looking through the eyes in the sky, I stare at the life from afar. I stare at death from my office chair. I stare at history through a screen. Across the oceans and mountains and cities, I hope to see nothing. I hope to see everything. I hope for it to end. The actions of this drone control my future, my country's future, the world's future. But the future is already here. Emily will now read out her own piece, titled Your Love Letters Must Have Gotten Lost. Dear humanity, the red stains from your fistfuls of kisses are the bruises that remain, unfading in my cheeks. Plastered and painted by foundations, constructions, cities, skyscrapers, sewers, factories, landfill. Cavernous scars, stretch marks, as my skin changes, ages, grows like yours, they bow and arch like your precious ribs. Still, your penetrations, drills, mining operations are no longer surgical, they discard Thrive on your disregard that I am living. My stomach whipped up a concoction, wind, no rain and flames. That acid prickles sputtering across my skin. Why do burning bushes with cause and risk and pain mean sceptics remain oblivious, free to look a different way? Your next stage of evolution is evasion, running from a dispersing truth. Allergens are on the rise, the skies are choking with you. Runny nose, dry throat, sticky eyes, as my open lungs are corrupted by your emissions, your omissions, silence. As trees collapse, chewed through, falling in forests, to be heard by hundreds of deaf ears. With love, the only planet Earth. Thank you, Emily, for reading. Our fifth speaker is Laurel, and this first piece is called House Hunting by Jeremy Sari Mitchell. House Hunting. The year is 2006. David Tennant is Doctor Who. Dick and Dom in the bungalows in its final season, and my brother Harry and I are waiting to be picked up by our dad so that we could stay with him for the weekend. Bags packed with clothes, we would sit outside on the porch until we spotted our dad rounding the corner and then we'd quickly say goodbye to our mother and rush over to meet him. 
I'd learned that over time that I had to be ready to go with my shoes on before Dad came for us. Otherwise Mum would be irritated that she would have to face her ex-husband for longer than she previously anticipated. I often wondered why it had to be this way. Why don't they get along? I would think. That my parents are supposed to get along. Nearly every weekend it was the same. Dad would arrive and Mum would make small talk with him at the door as Harry and I collected any last minute things. It was, as I would find out later in life, a rather awkward affair for my dad. Things were difficult between Sally and himself ever since the breakup. He was living in a cold flat with not a lot of money to live on, yet she was living in a nice house and seemingly couldn't be happier. All the while, the government was telling him he had to pay child support to keep seeing the two of us. It was a hard time, a sad time that he struggled to pull through. But as Harry and I were too young to understand what was going on, it seemed very normal to us. At the time, my dad, Evan, lived in a small flat on the other side of town. He resided in flat 10 in the fourth floor, which to a seven-year-old who was in desperate need of a growth spurt felt like climbing Everest. Harry, however, never seemed bothered by the stairs, or as time went by, any steep structure at all, which is a trait that baffles me to this day. Harry is like a mountain goat. On one occasion, the three of us were climbing the Welsh Mount Mount Dad and myself struggled to get up due to stiff legs and a shared fear of falling back down again, whereas Harry was already halfway up. By the time Dad and I had arrived at the top, my brother was sitting on the peak and said, What took you so long? I've been here for ten minutes. This is an ability that I have always been jealous of. After braving Mount Staircase, the flat will become a welcome sight. Sadly, upon further investigation, the flat most likely was not the best location to live due to the amount of problems it had. Namely, the worst being the lack of any heating whatsoever or the fact that there was only one bed. The problem with the bed was the biggest one. To get around this, my brother and I would take it in turns each night to sleep in the bed with Dad. The other would sleep on a portable bed on the floor. However, the sleeping arrangements often ended up with both my brother and I sleeping in the bed and our father on the floor. It wasn't the best, but it was a step up and still warmer than our dad's previous lodgings, located over a block of shops on the high street. The previous flat was very cold and had walls like paper, but of course, having no money, he had no way of improving it. He said that it was an improvement from sleeping on his friend's floor as he had in the first few months after the breakup. But seeing how cold the flat was, I wondered whether he was saying that for our benefit or his own. The idea of living above the high street was very interesting to me. Before Dad read us our bedtime story, I liked looking out of the window and watching the busy people wander under the amber glowing lights, imagining what had brought them to this area in the first place. When our dad couldn't see us for the weekend, we stayed with our grandparents on our mother's side. They were nice enough people. Grandma would make biscuits and other treats with us every time we visited. I always loved that, but I never really liked staying overnight. My grandparents' old house looked very scary at night, and I always ended up falling asleep while hiding under the covers from monsters that would emerge from the shadows of the dark house, taking their victims away from their beds to eat for their supper. For that reason, I always preferred staying with Dad, because I knew that I wasn't alone. It was tough for him to be in that situation, but I knew that he always looked forward to seeing me and Harry the most, because no matter how hard things were, we would treat life as an adventure, 
he needed us and we needed him too. Life at Mum's house could at best be described as tense. At this point, Mum's at the time fiancé, Kev, had lived with us for about two years now. In the right mood, Kev could be nice. However, one small nudge in the wrong direction could set him to erupt more than a volcano, so Harry and I had to be careful of what we said, lest we face his wrath. I looked forward to seeing Dad on the weekends the most, because it meant a short respite where I could relax and focus on only having fun with my father and brother. When Dad had saved enough money for a deposit, he began to look for a house. He had told us about this, and we were very much looking forward to it. A warm house, with our own rooms, with our own mess, where when we left to go back to our mother's house, we could come back and have things exactly the same as when we had left it. No more packing clothes. We would have our own chest of drawers for that. It would be somewhere we could feel safe. Eventually, eventually, Dad found a house that when we went to view it, we thought was perfect. It was a small house with a small living room, a very small kitchen and an even smaller bathroom. It had its problems, like the weeds in the garden, the noisy dog next door and the damp walls in my room, but we loved it. And it was only half an hour's walk up from Mum's house. As soon as we could, we bought the house and moved in, quickly making more friends nearby than I could count. The three of us have been happy living there ever since. Laura will now read a second piece titled A Summit Made of Moulded Darkness by Amy Langton. A Summit Made of Moulded Darkness Yesterday, I was cold. I pushed myself into the corner of my bedroom and hid from the world outside. The trees, the branches, the leaves, the landscape of the soil and where the soil meets the pavement. The universe is decaying against a nation of greedy creatures, and I am a microcosm fighting a complex nature of cognitions. The lights are no longer lit, I am no longer just cold. I have become scared, shadows are now my companions. I can hear the earth turning and I am climbing mountains that no longer stand straight. Cliffs that are crumbling back to the ground they once emerged from. I'm floating in a sea full of plastic memories. The waves gaining strength and opposing my fragile frame. The currents knock me back and I am in bed. Cradled in covers and yet I'm still cold. Thank you, Laurel. The sixth speaker will be Drew. Drew will be reading out two pieces. The first piece was written by Emily Hambly and is called A Thousand Wolves Have Eaten Grandmother. The author has been arrested for crimes against conventional storytelling. The trial begins with this announcement. It is made to a room filled with the echoes of heavy and precise words like allegation and objection. The announcement is followed by a brief but intense silence. Someone laughs, probably the author. We are here to talk about stories, the speaker goes on to explain. As we all know, stories have a definite shape, a beginning, a middle, an end. The speaker waves his hands to emphasise his words, creating an unrecognisable shape in the air. A picture paints a thousand words, someone else adds and is ignored. Explain to me exactly what the problem is, the author says standing up and surveying the room with the air of a person who plans to write this all down for future use. The author is eating a cheese and tomato sandwich and speaks between bites. Another lengthy silence follows the author's words. 
This time, the silence crackles like static. We have evidence, the speaker continues, punctuating his words with the tapping of a determined finger on the table in front of him. There is a flurry of movement, and a book is retrieved from where it has been strategically stashed at the edge of the room. It is slammed onto the table. Fairy tales, the book slammer says dramatically. Exhibit A, fairy tales. Ah, says the author, breathing in deeply to inhale the musty scent of the yellowed pages. It's all here, the book slammer continues. Everything you need to know about stories. It's quite simple, really. It's not that simple. It's very simple. A thousand witches have been slain. A thousand servant girls have gone to the ball. A thousand wolves have devoured an unsuspecting grandmother. The author sits back down. Who's been eating my sandwich? You simply have to write stories as they are supposed to be written. Follow the rules. Construct a plausible sequence of events and tie everything up at the end in a neat little parcel with a neat little bow. The proceedings are interrupted by a loud rumbling noise, one that sounds very much like a thousand writers have been let into the building. From what they can hear, members of the angry mob are yelling at one another about punctuation, apostrophe after the S, you fool, and debating whether the world creates language or language creates the world. With the exception of the author, everyone in the room starts to look very nervous. How many cases did we have booked in for today? Someone asks. Um. Three? Comes the anxious reply. I think it was supposed to be three. Will someone please find out what's going on? As the commotion continues, the author takes a moment to think, brushing sandwich crumbs from the table onto the floor. The author considers sneaking out through a side door or climbing out of a window. Instead of moving, the author looks towards the court stenographer who is writing down everything that is being said during the trial. I hope that's helpful, whatever you're writing. The author says, Will I get a copy? No response. Is the stenographer allowed to speak? The author wonders. Or is she reluctant to? She will be forced to transcribe her own words. The harried movements in the room have ceased. In the background, the sounds of an angry mob can still be heard. The author hopes that the trial will be over soon. The author hopes that the narrow-minded traditional thinking court will be obliterated by the angry mob of writers. Someone clears their throat and says, This trial is about writing. Writing is a trial, the author mumbles. Next up, Drew will be reading out a piece called Phone Assessment, written by Laura Newberry. My voice is too carried on the breeze, but too loud into the receiver, and for some reason is saying all the things I never say. So often they feel sometimes like stories. And I feel keenly my fraudulent misstepping in the sunlit middle of a work day. Feeling okay today, but not usually, usually feeling okay. And saying the words without the feeling is not the same as saying words without feeling the way my voice does when I am feeling that way. I feel the ground unevening my steps, and the voice through the speaker tells me it is sorry, and I tell it not to worry. It's not that I want to, it's that I feel like I might get to wanting to, and that wanting to might make me not want to anymore, or want to cleave my head into quarters, though practically I couldn't make it past halves. Thank you, Drew.
Up next is Hannah Petch reading her own piece titled New Hue. My hair changes colour with the seasons. No longer am I burnt peach, now I am living a tangerine dream. Each new hue an attempt to leave you behind. Each new shade an attempt to leave behind the old me. With each season I metamorphose, I transform. The winter has been dark. My hair has shed from the stress, left traces of my former self. Every time I closed my eyes, you were all I saw. But spring is approaching, my hair is getting lighter, and as the trees start to blossom, so will I. Thank you, Hannah. Now we will hear Lucy Pettigrew reading her own piece called Breathing. My bedroom breathes with me. We fall into a rhythm right for a pair. Books stand to attention on shelves, identity apparent on walls. Leftover crumbs of anorexia in the bed to be brushed away and made irrelevant to all except the struggling hoover. Fake plants because I've never been good at looking after living things. Fairy lights softening the blow of a hard day. Shoes to get me where I need to be. Flowers, a reminder of love. Pictures to show me I've never been alone and I never will be. Thank you, Lucy. Number nine on our speaking list is Sharon Holm reading their own work titled Disikari. Returned, it comes back to me. Money, small victories, hand on shoulder. Back home in the shadow of the second largest tulip tree in Massachusetts, your house now stripped bare for sale. Punch drunk with absence, its slump-hipped roof, its ivy, a negligee of neglect. Outliving time and purpose, its deeper hidden bruise. After an unprecedented summer of drought, late season heat portends a reckoning. In driest soil, a lessened bounty, the diminished reach of roots. Like others to come, this New England autumn will release itself too early. Fewer trees will flare burnt red. Sienna, ochre. Fewer leaves, five-fingered fires, will promise the cycle complete. Yet boughs overwrought and out of sync still know how to let go. They drop leaf after loved leaf, edges curled and brown. Like the card returned with your name through my letterbox, sealed still, a bud of unbroken, tulipped sorrow, my last whisper to you. There is more here for you, it lied. Leaves lattice-laced, desiccate with death, still provide the necessary metaphor. Ready for burning, they will catch the last rasp of September's air. They will restore the rubied light of a million dead sons, in each their turning, in each their fall. Thank you, Sharon. Finally, our last two pieces of the audio showcase. First up is War Paint by Neil James Hudson. Social relations are changing, and your makeup should change with them. Our new range of emotional cosmetics may just be the weapon you need. Each product releases nanomemes into your bloodstream to alter your mood accordingly. 
and is guaranteed to juice you up with the emotions you need to do battle. Our range includes angry lipstick. Everyone knows that words can hurt far more than sticks and stones. Give your words their maximum effect by adding anger to your mouth. Our various shades of ire will soak into your lips and fill your bloodstream with the memes you need to do battle. Choose from a light pink irritation to a luscious purple rage and turn those pouting kissable lips into a deadly weapon. Thick skin foundation. Applied liberally to the face, this foundation contains nanomemes that will protect you from any kind of insult or barb that your opponent may care to make. The foundation will cloak your mind with a shield of insensitivity, meaning you won't take these ill-meant comments to heart. You'll be able to dish out the verbal onslaught, but won't have to suffer from it in return. Touchy Nails This varnish works in the opposite way to our foundation. It will harden your nails but soften your defences, so you become more sensitive to the hidden meaning of other people's banter. If you've ever wondered if something was meant as an insult, use this nail varnish and you'll be certain. You can choose your shade to suit the level of overthinking required. Shadow Eyes the eyes are the windows to the soul, and our eyeshadow will darken your mood along with your eyes. Any thoughts of empathy or humanity will dissolve, turning you away from the light and into the dark night of the soul. We advise you to use it sparingly. Just as subtlety is the key to a fascinating face, a light touch is the key to becoming less forgiving and more brooding. Involvement Mascara Don't let firm boundaries spoil your battle. Touch up your lashes with this mascara and feel the warm glow of righteousness as it slowly becomes all about you. As the nanomemes reach your cerebral cortex, you will stop worrying about whether this is someone else's argument or whether you should stay out of it. This makes it an ideal cosmetic to put on just before a bout of social media. Memory Rouge. To forgive is to forget, so make sure you remember by rubbing some of our mnemonic colour onto your cheeks. These nanomemes will search your brain for slights and grudges from childhood, and even earlier. You'll discover wrongs that you had completely forgotten, and will offer up the retaliation that was always due. Don't let bygones be bygones. Put the past at the forefront of your attack. Concealer. Never mind blemishes in your face. This concealer works on your mind. Once absorbed, it works on those thoughts that might diminish your attack, feelings of guilt or sympathy for the other's point of view. You will stay focused on the rightness of your cause and you won't be distracted by doubts that your enemy could use against you. Just a few dabs and you'll never pull a punch again. Emotional cosmetics are for novelty use only and under strict supervision. Not suitable for under 18s, couples with relationship problems are advised to seek counselling. And now, the last piece of the audio showcase, written by Adam Kirkbride, we have Clouds at Sunset. The clouds that float above me, soft and white, against the sky of changing hue at points, and peaks seem like pure white snow, firm and crisp, enough for me to eat in scoops if I reach out from up atop that tree whose branches knot and coil above its trunk and leaves which dance on edge with air and sky, horizon. High, I dare say, I could clutch these clouds and bring them with me to the ground to rest on them when evening settles down upon. First glance, the clouds seem flat, but now I've crossed. Some unclear line of condensed rain, they solidify clouds made of rain that used to lie on earth, but rose above to fall to earth. 
but rise above a cycle never-ending. A cycle that refuses to die despite the droughts and waves of heat, the rain soon came. Back down again to us mere mortals, cold and plain, ungrateful for the summer sun, yet yearning for it when it's gone, the sun, which separates this sky and approaches. Its western side casts warmth and light to poke, between a gap in greyish clouds that mark the rain like pinpricks burning hot and white, as darkness chases sun to night over. Man-shaped hills of earthen make they are, pursued by sunset air that dusk enlightens, with its flare in blushed pinks and orange, rays, dusk, pushes blue and white of clouds that rest within retreating sky as suns, light bursts the clouded edge and cracks it down, the middle from its companion resting, just behind like bolts of lightning from. The gods of old, it cuts these clouds from one, another so they may no more embrace each other. I sit as lazy as a stone, watching clouds in the back seat of a car driving human roads, layered over nature's home, wishing clouds were crisp yet soft, but not quite as cold as snow. Thank you to all the authors who have submitted their work to be read for the showcase and thank you to all of the speakers who have volunteered their time to read out just some of the amazing pieces we have for this year's anthology. I hope you are all well and safe. Please keep an eye out for information regarding the release of the anthology on our Twitter and Instagram at beyondysj and check out the creative writing blog for more www.blog.ysj.ac.uk slash creative writing. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.